0: Once again, good evening, everyone. Delight to see you on this holiday, Labor Day. And since today is Labor Day, I thought I would share with you some reflections on this particular teaching that you find in Buddhism called Wise Livelihood. And in particular, uh, hopefully giving you a feeling sense of how livelihood, and I'm gonna be expanding what this term means in a little while how it can be my dharma practice the fullness of this practice and how it's so important for the unfolding of this path and there's a uh a text that I'm going to be utilizing at times that comes from the the zen tradition it's called the uh, the the Zen term from it the, uh, is the Tenzo Kyokan. It was it was a text that was uh, written by the Zen master Dogen, and it's usually translated something like uh, "Instructions for the Cook of a Monastery." And it's such an interesting text around cooking as practice. And the, the reason I want to bring it in is, is because I feel like it's it, it it's a beautiful expression of wise livelihood of. Of how we explore it here in the Theravada tradition, and uh, the way I'd like to begin it is by sharing a story that's in this text, the Tenzo Kyokan, and it's uh, Dogen himself. He's he's sharing that he had this really this transformative encounter with uh, another monk, and uh, there is a point in in Zen Master Dogen's life where he He was so eager to get to the roots of Zen practice that he decided to uh, make the dangerous passage to China from Japan. And to remember, the Zen master Dogen lived in the 13th century. So the journey from Japan to China was uh, not always seen as a safe journey and didn't always work out so well. So, but he was inspired. He really wanted to to go to China to to get to the roots of uh, this path and this practice. And when he arrived in the port on the ship he was in, for some reason, he said he had to stay at the port with with the ship that he was there. He could walk around, but he had to stay there at the port. And while he was there in the port, in the distance, he saw this uh, monk walking by and buying some food. So he went and paid his respects and said, uh, please can we have have tea? I'd I'd so love to hear about your journey. And Dogen begins by saying, you know, just please tell me about yourself. And he comes to discover that this monk was what's called the Tenzo, the cook of the monastery of a of an, a monastery. And he was in his uh he, he thought maybe his early 60s, so probably, you know, 60, 61 years old. And he shared with uh, Dogen, tomorrow, he said, tomorrow, this is the, the monkey was saying, is this special holiday, this this festival. And I traveled here to get some delicacies, these kind of, these uh, mushrooms for the the community there, just to celebrate. And Dogen asked him, well, uh, how far did you travel? And he said, 12 miles. So he'd hiked, basically walked 12 miles to get this food, and then he needed to turn around immediately to get back there, to walk another 12 miles to get there before, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, before the next day. And, and when Dogen heard this, he said, you know, he was rather confused by the effort that this older monk was putting into cooking. Cause in most uh, Buddhist monasteries, the the order of seniority is dependent upon how long you've been a monk. And somebody who had been 60 years old, who was 60 years old, had obviously had been in robes for a really long time. So he was a senior monastic. So he wasn't one of the, the younger monastics there. And so it was confusing for Dogen. Like, why is this senior monastic doing... Task that would, uh, he assumed to be for a younger monastic. And so he asked, he asked this monk, uh, what's up with this? And he, 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 this is what he said. He said, you are venerable in your years. Why don't you sit in meditation to pursue the way or to contemplate the words of the old masters? It's troublesome to be a cook. All you do is labor. What good is that? And then the cook laughed and said, my good man from a foreign country, (laughs) you do not yet understand the pursuit of the way and do not yet know about the written words of the masters of old. And then Dogen says, when he heard the, the, the senior monk speak, he said, when I heard him speak in this manner, I suddenly felt ashamed and taken aback. So here Dogen is, he's 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 coming to a new understanding of practice. And you can see it in that, that emotional response to that of like, oh, I have a lot to learn here. And I think later on he went uh, and visited this monk once again at his monastery to learn even more from him. And he said that uh, he felt like he, he uh, finally started to understand some of these teachings he received from this monk. And uh, a verse came to him. Uh, and part of the verse goes, as night advances, a bright moon illuminates the whole ocean. The dragon's jewels are found in every wave looking for the moon, it is here in this wave and in the next wave. Do you hear what he's pointing to? What this verse is pointing to in particular? Oh, Dharma practice, it's right here. It's right here in this particular wave that's happening in my life. It's in the cooking, it's in the cleaning. It's in the speaking, it's in the walking, it's even in the sleeping. And you can find wisdom, you can find the dragon's jewels there in every way, whether it's the cooking or cleaning or sleeping, washing your hands, going to the bathroom. There's Dharma practice. And this makes so much sense in terms of this theme that I wanna share with you some reflections on about wise livelihood. Wise livelihood, or it's sometimes translated as right livelihood, is maybe many of you know, it's part of the eightfold path. It's one of the limbs, it's one of the these uh, eight factors. So it's intertwined in this path and this practice. So as Dogen learned, this path that, uh, we explore it's so much more than just meditation it's meant to encompass your entire life it's broader than meditation i remember this kind of rude awakening for myself when i was a zen monk so in in a zen monastery you'd have different positions that you would take so sometimes you'd be the the head monk in, in the, Zen, the tradition I was in, and Scott, you probably noticed, the Jigajitsu or the other person uh, was in the meditation hall, was the Shoji. They were the one who took care of the the uh, students a lot. And yet another position was the Tenzo, the the person in the kitchen. And I remember rotating into that role of the Tenzo, and it was it was brutal actually, I have to say. So uh, it, during the training period, you'd get up at three o'clock in the morning, but if you were in the kitchen, often you would get up earlier to get things started in the kitchen. And then you'd go to chance, which most of the time, you, at least I did sleep through most of it because <laughs> you were tired. And then you're were, you were I was literally on my feet the entire day, making sure that people were having the, these three meals every day. And on the day off, I still had to cook three meals a day. <laughs> that was just my day off. And then usually once a week you would go down uh the tenzo would go down. Actually it was it was a, it was a very fascinating um experience. We were up uh this place called Mount Baldy and you drive down into Los Angeles. Usually uh I would leave like at 2:15 or 2:30 in the morning and Maybe sometimes even two, and you'd go into the Los Angeles produce market, which is one of the largest produce markets in the in the world. These huge semis all around, and we had these. Uh, there were a number of, uh, of vendors there. These actually sometimes huge vendors that knew where we would we would would come, and we would go and stand in silence, and then often they would give us uh, vegetables and things like that. Of uh, various degrees of how fresh they were. Sometimes they were super fresh. Other times, especially from the citrus market, they were always rotten almost. So you'd have to pick through and get get what you could. And here I was, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to become a monk is because I found meditation so transformative. And here I was not being able to meditate very much. It was like in the early morning, you'd maybe get a little meditation. And then in the evening, and the rest of the day I was working. And there was something that I learned from my brother, brother uh, monastics about that challenge of this too is your practice, and to really land that—not so much uh, something spoken, but to to feel that. Oh, th- this is meant to encompass the entirety of your life. This too is the path in the practice. And livelihood, uh, I I, I want to point out a, a way of understanding is that it not only includes what one's job or occupation is but also more broadly includes how i'm living my life and this is why i wanted to use just a little bit of these pieces of this text something that's often seen as just basic that's so important cooking so yeah traditionally i am uh, at least in terms of the eightfold path there it, there is an aspect of livelihood that is connected with how I bring in money, and yet it's also broader than this. So it includes raising children or grandchildren, taking care of elderly parents. It's sweeping the floor, or as I've been pointing out, cooking a meal or washing the dishes, or maybe it's sensitively listening to someone who needs someone to be there for them. It can be volunteering, it can be being a student. And this is, I think, what I imagine at least that Dogen is feeling the transformation from is here is this senior monastic that has transformed cooking into the embodiment of this path and this practice. So what are some of the dimensions of wise livelihood? One is uh, a kind of wise livelihood would be one that's rooted in caring rather than harm. That cook, remember the story? He deeply cared for his community. He made the 24 mile journey to share something with them on a special day. To me, that's care making sure that the community was fed, that they were being nourished day after day. I notice for me, part of this path is is asking myself, how do I offer care for community through wise livelihood? And I wanna point out, these are tied to even bigger questions that I've had to reflect on at times what do you want to be doing with your life? How do you want to be spending your time? And from the perspective of wise livelihood, of value that hopefully is there is somehow intertwined with care or contribution. To spend your time caring for yourself and others. Uh, So possibly a job that allows you to financially take care of yourself, which the Buddha talks about, that it's important to be able to take care of ourselves. We, too, count, but to also be able to take care of those close to us or or to take care of community. And and I wanna be clear, it might not be in the domain of work where you connect most with this value of caring and positively contributing, maybe it's around your home life or around volunteering. I know there's been times in my life where the job that I've had, I have it because I gotta pay the bills, <laughs> not because it's deeply meaningful, <laughs> but I gotta pay the bills. And and I do wanna point out in dominant society, maybe you've noticed this, there can be such an emphasis on making one's job central in one's life. So often what I've noticed, the, the question that can be habitually asked is, so what do you do? What do you do? And I remember going to Nepal and someone fortunately telling me this, asking someone what what their occupation is in Nepal, for the most part is a rude question. The more common appropriate question is to ask about their family. Can you tell me about your family? And of course, what I notice is everybody in Nepal loves that question. They brighten up and there's this huge conversation that happens. And why is that? It's because family is so central to them, much more than their job. It's kind of like a job. Yeah, I mean, I gotta pay the bills, but I have family. But back, back to uh, this this the sense of caring and harm, I think it's an important question. Does my livelihood contribute to the suffering in this world or not? Does the way I make money or make a living contribute to caring or to harming? And this is, at least in some of these early texts, this is what the, the Buddha Uh, speaks quite a bit about, like he he encourages lay practitioners not to engage in five different types of uh, business or work. And he says that these are to abstain from business in weapons, business in human beings, which I'll kind of explain, business in meat, business in intoxicants, and business in poison. And I, I find it interesting. It, it, it's I, I think it's uh, important to kind of reflect on what these categories might mean for our contemporary times. Some, I think, are, are pretty clear in, ter- in terms of our contemporary times. Business in weapons, not to manufacture or sell weapons that harm. Business in human beings. You know, probably at that time, since there was still slavery, slave trade or slave labor. In our times, maybe business that takes advantage of others in these ways, where someone is not being paid a living wage. That is a kind of business in human beings that's quite harmful. Business in meat, like being a butcher. Business in intoxicants course, maybe the obvious one is alcohol, but are there other intoxicants? I think of media sometimes. It can be so intoxicating in a way that I find that might not be so helpful for our communities. And the same with what would be the kind of poisons that are sold or in the marketplace that we'd want to abstain from. So what are the modern equivalents here? There's one discourse by the Buddha, a sutta, where uh, an actor comes and asks the Buddha. What he asks the Buddha, which you know doesn't fit so much for many contemporary practitioners, is um, the actor asks the Buddha, "Where will I be reborn?" And the Buddha says, "Don't ask me that, please. Don't ask me that." <laughs> and then he gives them the the bad news. So it it leads me to the question, when is entertainment harmful? And when is it onward leading? What's the entertainment that you've noticed that you find brings a sense of care, a sense of understanding, maybe of others that we don't understand how, how literature and movies can really open up worlds for us and soften the heart. But what are the other forms of entertainment that might be harmful? you know, what's your understanding of that for your own life and for the world that we live in? And I I use that as a segue to hopefully you're hearing how this can be such a complex and complicated topic in these modern lives of ours around this realm of care and harm. At least this is what I've noticed for myself, even when I think about my livelihood it's intertwined with these systems of harm sometimes i'm flying on planes for my work that has impact harmful impact i pay taxes on the income the money that comes to me and i pay it to a government that spends more money on militarization than any other country in the world. It's complex what it is to be involved in wise livelihood. I'm entangled in a system that a large segment of the population here in the United States, probably even here in Flagstaff, or wherever you are on Zoom, a large segment of the population is not making a living wage. There's still a large um, dynamic of income inequality. I remember a dilemma around this. Actually, there was a, um, a whole magazine that was <laughs> took on this controversy because it, it got so much press at one point. At one point, I was invited to teach uh, mindfulness to those in the military. There was a practitioner, actually, someone who was ordained in Burma, but also came from a military family, and came up with this, really, this brilliant mindfulness program specifically for people in the military. And on one hand, we could say, what a great place to teach something that might allow people not to act out of reactivity. Don't you think that's important? Now, here they are in these tense situations to not act out of reactivity, but rather instead to learn how to skillfully respond. There could be something really caring about that impulse. And yet there's the other side, isn't it? They were training soldiers. They were bringing in mindfulness to make them more effective at killing. So I I just want to point that point out that this is a challenging and complex arena, and and in, in some ways I hope it is for you. I think that's the mark of ethics is to notice. That ethics can be complex at times. And as I said, you know, sometimes, or maybe I should say often, it can just be f- challenging to find a job that's both de- deeply ethical and meaningful and pay the bills. Sometimes there's not a lot of choice. As I said, there's been times in my life that I, I just needed to get some job just to pay the bills. So sometimes we're in such a situation, and I think it's important to remember that. As I share all these complexities and these complications, what I really wanna point out about wise livelihood is that it's not about perfection. Because to me, that's sometimes a trap about ethics is if I'm trying to be perfect and then I just end up feeling paralyzed. Rather, uh, what I've discovered, and I think this is what the Buddha is pointing to, it's about enacting and, and embodying beautiful qualities of heart no matter what situation we're in. Moments of kindness, moments of compassion, moments of generosity, moments of equanimity. And not only that, can you feel and appreciate the ways your work is an embodiment of care? is an embodiment of some positive contribution to community and to the world. And yes, as I was saying, the willingness to engage with such difficult ethical questions about without merely collapsing or ignoring the complexity. So in terms of positive contribution, I just wanna come back to that a little bit. I, I want to point out at least what's been important for me, it's even the small, beautiful qualities of heart that you bring in the bring and day after day in your livelihood that they count the kindness to your worker, fellow worker or your boss, or maybe it's just pausing before saying something when your child or when your partner or when your colleague is irritating the hell out of you, right? It makes a difference. It changes things, and it's interesting going back to that test, that text. Uh, Dogen speaks to this just around um, when he's talking about washing rice or preparing vegetables. He's talking about those specific activities. He says, "Do not give away your opportunity, even if it is a drop in the ocean of goodness." or in the ocean of that which is onward leading. Do not fail to place even a single particle of earth on the great mountain of wholesome deeds. The small gestures of scrubbing the carrot or chopping the onion, they count. And can you savor that, deeply savor that? Savoring one's ethical conduct. And this is one of the practices that you find the Buddha talking about. Can you savor the good things that you do every day? He has this beautiful description of of savoring in this way. He's, He's talking about wise people who do this. He says, when wise people sit on their chair or on a bed or rest on the ground, the beautiful actions that they did in the past beautiful bodily actions, beautiful verbal and mental actions. These actions cover them. They overspread them and envelop them. Just as the shadow of a great mountain peak in the evening covers, overspreads and envelops the earth, so too when wise people sit on their chair or bed or rest on the ground, then the beautiful actions that they did in the past they cover them, overspread them, and envelop them, these actions. This is a kind of pleasure and joy that a wise person feels in this life. Isn't that beautiful? I love that passage. It's like, and this is, I think, what can be forgotten. It's it's like, so often when I read the, the Buddha, he's just, pointing out things that are deeply pleasurable, not kind of pleasurable like social media, deeply pleasurable like ethical conduct, to savor this. I wanna come back once again to the sense of that wise livelihood isn't about perfection. As I said, it, 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 yes, it can be wonderful to find work that feels deeply meaningful and ethical and com- completely aligned. And yeah, if if that is uh, opens up for you, of course, to give your heart to that. And maybe you've noticed so often jobs, they're probably not going to be perfect <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> Trying to find the perfect job sometimes can be like trying to find one's soulmate or the perfect relationship. (laughs) Have you ever tried to do that? Oh, ouch. It's more complicated. And and yes, I want to point out, it's important to discern the relationships in your life and the possible jobs that are somewhat supportive, and those that aren't. So yeah, we, we have to. I have to engage in discernment, in discernment. That's super important. Yet, as modern people, if you're anything, this is what I've noticed, we're often faced with so many decisions. If you were just to reflect on today or or a few days in your life, how many decisions that you're faced with, again and again and again. You go to the grocery store, the kind of salad dressing that you're going to (laughs) buy, the doctor that you should see, the kind of medical care you should get. Then there's decisions about your job, your relationships, the 10,000 things that you can read or listen to or watch on the internet. What are you going to decide? And then looking for the perfect situation or the perfect thing can feel like it starts to wreak havoc on our minds and our lives. Have you noticed this happen? The sib spinning and obsessing of what should I do? Should I do this or should I do that? Should I stay or should I go? What direction should I go in? And it's this, this struggle with making the right decision This is one of the most common struggles that people come to me with hey brian can you help me with this decision i need to make and this overlaps with livelihood and work and the question of what should i do with my life and sometimes what i've noticed especially i found this around uh, some jobs that i've had sometimes it's been so helpful to see if I can have a different perception of what's going on. And the perception that I bring up, and I say that I only use this sometimes, please don't universalize this. The perception that helps bring a quality of equanimity is this is my fate. And if it's my fate, how do I fully meet this? I'm destined for this. And I can't do anything about it. I remember this coming in handy when I was searching for a job. It was actually after I was a Zen monk. So, just so you know, being a Zen monk was not really great for opening up great jobs and financial opportunities. <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a wise move in terms of finding like a meaningful, well-paying job. (laughs) Yeah. And so right afterwards, the town I was living in the, and thank you for the department of labor. I'd go down there and they would, uh, the thing that was open up was day labor. So I would, um, sometimes it would just be a day or finally I get in with a construction company. There was a few weeks of of work, I needed that work because I needed to pay the bills. And I'll tell you, I wanted to have a different job. <laughs> and yet this was the job I had and was the only job I could get. And then I realized what was helpful is like, this is my fate, this is this is my life, day labor. And once I could start to land that a little bit, my mind could stop obsessively thinking of what else I can do to make money and to start to be there for the job, to make it my practice. And of course, I was continuing to look for other jobs, but it settled me. I could land in Dharma practice. I remember we were plastering sheetrock. So it was just really fully getting into plastering and sanding. After the the sheetrockers got the sheetrock up, it opened up this quality of equanimity. There's a, a, I think, a fullness of this expression that I just came on, uh, came upon the last few years, which some of you might know about that the uh, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the the philosopher, spoke about of this term he would use, uh, amor fati, amor love, fati fate to be in love with one's fate and he he gives this story around this he says what if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliness loneliness loneliest loneliness and say to you this life as you now live it and have lived it will have to you will have to live once more and innumerable times more And there will be nothing new in it but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything uh, unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you all in the same succession and sequence would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus or instead Have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you have had uh, answered him? You are a God, and never have I heard anything more divine. Do you hear what he's pointing out? It's, It's this notion of what's called eternal recurrence, that you will live the same exact life for eternity. That is your fate. And what would it be like to come to start to love your fate? When I take on that perception, there's something that opens up. It's like I stop to struggle to want complete control and start to settle right here, right now, to love this fate that I have. to allow the heart to ease in that way, to fully be here, however your life is unfolding. it It's helped. Maybe I didn't come across it in that fullness with the difficult jobs I've had, for example. And yes, I, I don't mean this as a universal, so much of Buddhism is about having agency, but to play with perception in this way. So, wise livelihood to to contact the sense of caring and not harming a sense of wholeheartedness and maybe at times when it's difficult to 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 love to love whatever fate we're faced with thank you thank you for your attention thank you for listening